You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick Community Radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening! I can feel it! We care about your world. Stay tuned. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, be your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time, to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't, further down the line. On today's show, Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Marshall Rosenberg taught nonviolent communication all over the world for many, many years and helped create schools that taught nonviolent communication. In this presentation, Marshall Rosenberg talks about honesty that supports compassionate and empathetic connection. This session, I'll be describing the kind of honesty that nonviolent communication supports. It's a radically different kind of honesty than many of us have been educated to use. Many of us have been educated by an honesty that evolves from our system of justice, retributive justice, which judges people as right or wrong, good or bad with the 
attachment to that, that if you are good, right, appropriate, etc., you deserve to be rewarded. But if you are bad, wrong, etc., you deserve to suffer, be punished, etc. It's my belief that that kind of honesty, that kind of thinking, is the basis of violence on our planet. It's a way of thinking that makes violence enjoyable. We're interested in nonviolent communication with the kind of honesty that supports people connecting with each other in a way that makes compassionate giving inevitable, that makes it enjoyable for people to contribute to each other's well-being. This kind of honesty basically involves telling people what's alive in us without using any words that criticize, and to tell people what would make life more wonderful for us, what we are requesting, without presenting this as a demand, but to present it as a request. So let's look at what kind of honesty is involved in this evaluation of this kind. First of all, it's very important to be able to make clear observations to people that tell them what language on their part is stimulating our needs being fulfilled and what things they're doing that are not fulfilling our needs. This is one of the hardest things for human beings to do according to Indian philosopher Jadu Krishnamurti. It involves observing without evaluating, which Krishnamurti says is the highest form of human intelligence, to observe without evaluating. For example, I was working with some school administrators in the United States in a school system, and I was teaching these principles of schools how to evaluate teachers' performance. They were required to do this twice a year, to evaluate teachers' performances so they would observe the teachers in various situations and then have a session with the teacher where they would evaluate the teacher. So in my session with these school principals, I suggested that they think of a teacher who was behaving in a way that they were not happy with, and I would show them how to evaluate that teacher's behavior in a nonviolent communication way. And I started by asking them to think of a specific thing that this person does that you don't like. And one of the principals uh, picked a teacher that he said is inconsiderate of other teachers. And I pointed out that inconsiderate was what I would call an evaluation. And I was suggesting that I was asking for an observation. What does this person do that leads you to interpret her as inconsiderate? And he thought for a while and he said, well, you know, she does what she wants, but doesn't think of how this might affect other people on the staff. And I said again, excuse me, but you see, that is your evaluation. You're telling me what you think is going on in her, what she thinks about or doesn't think about. I was asking for specific behavior. 
He thought and thought, and he was having trouble doing it. The other administrators also saw the trouble they were having, how easy it was. Instead of answering my question of just what does the person do, they were mixing in what they thought of the person for doing this or how they interpreted them for doing it. So with my help, this administrator who judged this person as inconsiderate, the behavior was that this teacher would take her students outside for activities and have them perform these activities sometimes outside the window of teachers who were trying to teach subjects. And he gave two or three other concrete examples of things that this teacher did that interfered with other teachers wanting to teach as they wanted to. So it took him quite a while to get to this specific behavior of what the teacher did. Other administrators also suffered through this same process. The first two or three things they would tell me would be diagnoses, interpretations, criticism, but not the answer to my question of specific things that the person did that they didn't like. At this point, one of the school administrators jumped up and literally ran out of the room. And everybody looked a little confused about what might have led this man to run out of the room in this way. The next morning, he came in before the others and walked up and apologized to me for his abrupt departure the previous day. He said, the reason I ran out, Marshal, that activity you did at the beginning, showing us how to make clear observations without mixing in any evaluation, really helped me to understand why I always hate these evaluation procedures because I can see that by mixing up observation with evaluation, how it was easy for teachers to hear they were being criticized, but not to learn from it by my not being able to tell them the specific behaviors I was referring to. And I ran out yesterday because on the way to your training, I stopped off at the school and dropped my teacher evaluations for this period with my secretary to type up. And just listening to your first session helped me to see why I hate these periods and why the teachers get so defensive. I could see that it was because I was mixing up observation and evaluation. So I ran back to the school and asked the secretary to give me back the evaluations before she went to all of the trouble of typing them up. And I spent the whole day trying to make these evaluations by making clear observations to the teachers without mixing in any evaluations. He later told me when I went back to that school system a few months later how drastically different his evaluation period was this time. Instead of the teachers getting defensive and instead of it hurting morale, how much they appreciated an evaluation in which they could clearly see what they did that was in harmony with the administrator's values and what they did that conflicted with his values. We can learn by clear observations, but when the observations and evaluations are mixed together so that it sounds like a criticism, it makes the evaluation period painful for both sides. 
So in nonviolent communication, we want to be sure that whenever we want to talk to somebody about something they're doing that we're not happy with, that we clearly put this in the form of an observation. Now, this doesn't mean that that's all we do. The observation by itself doesn't tell fully what's alive in us. We need to let the person know how we evaluate this behavior. But we need our evaluation to be of a form that lets people know how our needs are affected by the behavior and that doesn't use any words that can be heard as criticism, judgment of a moralistic variety, or diagnosis that implies some kind of abnormality. So our evaluation needs to be focused on the life within ourselves, which to me means it needs to contain reference to our needs. We need to let people know what needs of ours are being met or not being met by their behavior and how we feel as a result of it. So when we tell people clearly our feelings and needs, we're letting them know what's alive in us when they do what they are doing. This is an evaluation based on life, not an evaluation that criticizes or blames. But this is quite a challenging way to evaluate because it's not how many of us have been educated to think and communicate. For example, this form of evaluation requires a literacy of feelings, that we tell people how we feel when they behave in a certain way. And many times when I'm doing an exercise with people and ask them how they feel when this other person does something they don't like, they'll use language like this. They'll say, I feel that that's wrong. And I'll point out that by my definition, that's not what I mean by a feeling. And they'll say, well, I said I feel. And I'll say, well, the word feel by itself can often be used in a way that doesn't refer to feelings as I define feelings. As soon as you say, I feel that was wrong, I would call that a thought, not a feeling. So many people use the word feeling and thought interchangeably. But in nonviolent communication, when we use the word feeling, we want it to refer to an emotion that a person is experiencing and that doesn't contain any diagnosis or intellectual analysis of the other person. So feelings would be feelings like I feel frustration, I feel sadness, I feel irritation when our needs are not getting met. But when our needs are getting met, I feel happy, I feel joyful, I feel pleasure. I went to schools for 21 years. I really cannot recall ever being asked what I was feeling. Feelings weren't part of life in the culture in which I grew up in. And especially if you were a boy, there are certain feelings that you got to feel were shameful to feel, such as I feel scared. See, boys weren't supposed to be scared. And there were other feelings, too, that had a very negative connotation. And part of the reason for this is that feelings are a language of life. 
and the cultures that we have been living under for about 10,000 years, domination cultures in which some people claim to be superiors and have a right to control others. People do not make good slaves when they are connected to life. So feelings are not regarded as a positive thing to say. Feelings are associated with weakness, as being immature, as being too emotional. So not only aren't we educated to speak a language of life, a language of feelings, we have been given a cultural education that has very negative connotation to many of our emotions. So we learn very quickly in life to cover up our emotions and hide them, even though if we want to relate in a way that promotes compassion between ourselves and other people, feelings are a key ingredient. So in nonviolent communication, honesty consists of telling people what they're doing clearly in the form of a clear observation and then evaluating it with reference to feelings and needs. So I've just described what I mean by feelings. And then we connect these feelings to our needs. Because nonviolent communication is based on the awareness that feelings are manifestations of what is happening to our needs. When our needs are being fulfilled, we feel pleasureful feelings. When our needs are not being fulfilled, we feel painful feelings. This is Mother Nature's way of helping us to judge our environment in terms of whether what is happening is life-serving or not. So if we're eating foods that are not good for our health, we feel painful kinds of reactions to this eating. On the other hand, if we feel good, enriched, stronger, our feelings tell us that our needs for food have been well met by this. So, painful feelings tell us our needs are not getting met. Pleasureful feelings tell us our needs are being met. Now, the most important part of honesty in nonviolent communication is our ability to clarify what is happening to our needs at a given moment. So we tell what the other person has done, how we feel about it, but the central part of the evaluation then is to relate our feelings to our needs. And this requires a need consciousness and a need literacy, which is not easy to come about, because once again the structures in which we have been living for a long time require us to be educated in a way in which we are not connected to our needs. People don't make good slaves to authority when they are alive, and our needs are the life that's going on within us. So not only are we not educated to speak of our needs and to have a full vocabulary and literacy for talking about our needs, we are given a lot of cultural training that makes it shameful to have needs. In the work I've been doing around the world in the last 40 years, many, many women tell me what difficulty they have expressing their needs, how they have been taught that loving women have no needs. They sacrifice their needs for their families. Men tell me how difficult it is to express their needs, 
how they have been taught that brave men have no needs. They're willing to sacrifice their lives for the king or for the flag. So we have been educated in a way that gets us cut off from life, cut off from our needs. And instead of a language of life for evaluating, we have been taught to evaluate with reference to rightness and wrongness, criticism of people. So in our training, we suggest to be sure that we learn how to be honest without any criticism, without any blame, without any judgment of a kind that people hear that what they're doing is bad or wrong. Now, when I say this, uh, many people get very confused and upset with it. Their whole lives have been based on the language of good, bad, right, wrong. They see it's all about how you are judged by authority, and if you're judged right, you get rewarded, and bad, you get punished. Their whole concept of religion is to think of a God that sits up and judges people good, bad, right, wrong. And when they are dead, then if they have been good enough, then they go to heaven, and if they have been bad, they go to hell. So our whole brain, our consciousness, is all shaped by this language of criticism, blame, and we're disconnected from our needs. I was talking about this in Rome, Italy, with a group of 80 teachers in Catholic schools. They were all either religious sisters or priests. And the first day, we spent a lot of time on this subject of how to be honest without criticizing people in a way that implies right and wrong. And the second morning when I came in, several of them were waiting for me. They told me they had been very upset by what they heard me say the day before. And one of the religious sisters said to me, You destroyed everything I've ever believed yesterday. I said, Sister, what did I say that had such an effect? She said, You said that we shouldn't judge people. You shouldn't say whether what they do is right or wrong. You shouldn't judge them. You should just let them do whatever they want. So you, if you know they want to steal or rob, whatever, just don't judge them. And I said, oh, sister, thank you for telling me that's what you heard. I can see that I didn't make myself clear. Because I was not suggesting that we not judge or evaluate people's behavior. I was suggesting that we not judge them in a way that perpetuates retributive justice justice based on the concept of punishment and reward. But I think it's very important to be honest and to evaluate and judge with a language of life, which tells people whether our needs are being met or not being met by what they're doing. But of course, this is not easy for people to come by because, as I say, we have not only not been encouraged to develop a language of life, a language of needs, but have been systematically educated to suppress our needs because people don't make good slaves when they are connected to life. So much of nonviolent communication training is designed to helping people develop a consciousness and literacy of needs and learning how to express these needs to others in a language that others can easily see what the need is without hearing any criticism. 
But since many people don't have this vocabulary, we have to do exercises to give them a lot of practice. It's like learning a new language. So we suggest that people write down those criticism, blaming words that they have used most in their lives of other people. And so they make a list of these words. So some people, selfish is one of the top words. You know, that's a selfish thing to do. Or others will say that's a stupid thing to do. Or you had no right to do that. So we get them to list those criticism and blaming statements they have probably made the most often in their lives of other people. Then when they have this list of the most frequent criticism and judgmental words they have used, we ask them to make an observation of what somebody might have done that was a stimulus for those words. And when they have that down, we then help them to see that all criticism, all blame, is a tragic expression of an unmet need that we can be more truthful by saying what the need is than any words which blame or criticize. But this is not easy because people usually do not have a language of needs. But this exercise helps them, so we get them to go down for each item on their list of their most frequently used criticisms of others. That when they think of what might have stimulated that, and then to translate their criticism into an unmet need. We suggest that everyone have at least a vocabulary of nine human needs. I pick the number nine after reading of research done by Manfred Max Neef, an economist from Chile. His whole system of economics is based on human needs. Manfred Max Neef and his colleagues evaluate the success of an economy in a radically different way than we do in the United States. In the United States, we measure the success on the measurements of the GNP, the gross national product, which essentially is how much money is made in certain areas. That system shows that it's successful when the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Manfred Max Neef's approach to economic success is based on whether human needs are met by all of the parties in the culture. So since his whole system of economy is based on human needs, he's gone to some trouble to research what are the basic human needs that need to be fulfilled if we're to have a safe, healthy, peaceful world. And he comes up with nine needs. And the success of an economic system, as he would measure it, is how well these needs are met by the, everyone in the population. That really helped me because I had a list of about 50 words that I had gathered up to learn to develop my need vocabulary. And I realized that I had several words that were different ways of saying basically the same need. And I realized he's probably right, that we probably do just have about nine needs that we need to get real good at being able to express to other people. So let me offer you what these nine needs are that Manfred Max Neef is talking about and 
I'll use more my language than his, but here are the needs that he comes up with. First, sustenance. And by that he means the basic physical needs such as food, air, water, shelter. Most people that I work with, they're pretty good at expressing those needs. I guess we do need to learn those pretty quickly or we wouldn't survive very long. The next need that Manfred Max Neef talks about is safety, protection. A third need, love. A fourth need, empathy. A fifth need, rest, recreation, play. Sixth need, a community, a warm community. Seventh need, creativity. And the last two needs are particularly important needs in terms of safety on our planet, peace on our planet. The eighth need is autonomy. Look in the newspaper on any given day and see how many wars are going on over this need of autonomy. We human beings have a strong need to choose our own way in life and not to have it dictated by others who tell us what we have to do. And when they do that, it threatens this very basic need of ours for autonomy. And that need is alive in us from a very early age on. Listen in on any family that has small children and you'll often hear autonomy wars going on. The parent will say to the child, you must do this. And the child says, no. The parent said, did you hear me? You must do this. No. That's an autonomy war. The child is hearing demands, and when we hear demands, it threatens this very basic need of ours to choose our own way in life. And the ninth need, Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, describes as perhaps the most important need, important in the sense of our living our lives fully. He calls this a need for meaning, a need for purpose. When I'm using this word, I often describe it this way. It's our need to contribute to life, to see how our efforts have made people's lives richer, life on the planet richer. We're listening to Marshall Rosenberg here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. And the ninth need, Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, describes as perhaps the most important need, important in the sense of our living our lives fully. He calls this a need for meaning, a need for purpose. When I'm using this word, I often describe it this way. It's our need to contribute to life, to see how our efforts have made people's lives richer, life on the planet richer. So what I recommend to people is to get those nine needs into our own vocabulary. They may not be the words I just gave, words that you or the people that you're communicating with might use. 
But if so, then for each of these nine, try to find words that describe that in a way that you resonate to, that really captures for you that need. And then when you've developed a need vocabulary that works for you, then you may see that it may not work for the others with whom you are communicating with daily. For example, if you have a three-year-old in your house, the word autonomy may not work for the child, even though you may know what this word means and it resonates to your need for autonomy. But the three-year-old may not use the word autonomy, but they have the need for autonomy because all human beings have the same needs. That's very important to be conscious of, that all human beings have the same needs. So even though we may have different vocabularies for describing these needs, everybody has the same needs. So to really connect in a way that promotes compassion between ourselves and others, we need to be able to express needs in a language that the other people can resonate to. So take this list of nine need words that you resonate to, the words describe the needs for you. But then, if you're living with a three-year-old, figure out how to say each of these needs in a way that the three-year-old can resonate to. If you're working with street gang members, learn how to say these needs in a language that they can resonate to. If you're working with college professors, translate it into their language. In other words, if we really want to connect with human beings in a way in which we enjoy each other and enjoy contributing to each other's well-being, we need to be very literate with the language of needs. And any time we find ourselves wanting to criticize, to translate that criticism into our needs that isn't being met, we are far more likely to get our needs met when we speak our needs than when we tell people, what's wrong with them. So what I'm saying is that we evaluate behavior best according to the principles of nonviolent communication, where best means in a way that promotes compassionate giving, people enjoying learning from each other, that we are much more likely to promote connections of that sort, speaking clear observations, feelings, and needs. And to avoid words like right, wrong, good, bad, appropriate, inappropriate, etc., etc., especially words like should, shouldn't, have to, can't. Now, when I say this, very often when I'm working with teachers, they get very uncomfortable because they can't imagine how they can do their job as teachers without using words like right, wrong, good, bad, appropriate, inappropriate. For example, I was working with teachers in one school system on the eastern seaboard in the United States, and the teachers were very confused. They said to me, Marshall, how can we go through a day without telling students whether what they're doing is right or wrong? Our job as teachers is to evaluate students and to judge their performance. I said, yes, judgments and evaluations are very helpful if they're a language of life. But when we put it in the form of a language of right, wrong, good, bad, that's promoting a system of domination that I believe is contributing to violence on the planet. 
Well, they often need me to show them concretely in the situations in which they're working what this would look like. So, for example, in this school system that I was working with, they wanted me to take over several classes for a day so they could see how I would evaluate students using nonviolent communication. So I took over some math classes and some reading classes, etc., for the day. And the school system had me followed around all day with a video camera, making a videotape of what I did with the students so that this could be used to train the teachers in how to evaluate according to nonviolent communication principles of evaluation. I worked with students for about four hours that day in different classes. I went back to that school system a month later and the superintendent of schools was talking to me before the day started and he said, that videotape you made, Marshall, last time showing the teachers other ways of evaluating beside using words like good, bad, normal, abnormal. Boy, that has really motivated a lot of teachers to want to change their way of communicating. You know, we made four hours of videotape following you around, Marshall, but we only used the first ten minutes. What you did in that first ten minutes with a young boy really motivates teachers to change their language. I couldn't remember what happened in that first ten minutes, so he got the videotape and showed it to me. Here's what happened. I came across a young boy who had just added up a page of arithmetic problems that the teacher had given them to add up. This boy was nine years old. I saw that he added up nine plus six equals 14. And here's how I evaluated what he did. I said to him, hey buddy, I'm confused about how you got this answer. I get a different one. He started to cry. I said, hey, what's happening? Why are you crying? He said, I got it wrong. Notice I didn't say he had it wrong. I told him that I was confused because I had a different answer, and I was wondering how he got his. But he'd already been trained for three years in a school system that makes people focus their attention on how they're judged by authority. My experience is this takes the joy out of learning when we are judged in a way that implies we're stupid if we don't get it right and we're intelligent if we do. Notice my evaluation enabled me to be honest. I was confused. I did get a different answer. I wanted to see how he got his and I wanted to be able to show him another way of doing it if his way and my way were different. In nonviolent communication, we not only want to evaluate without any criticism or blame. We also want to evaluate without any praise or compliments. I'll be talking more about that in the ninth session when we talk about how to celebrate and express sincere gratitude. I hope then to show what danger exists in using praise and compliments, as well as words that criticize and blame. So, in nonviolent communication, the focus of our attention is on needs. We want 
people to see how their behavior affects human needs, whether it fulfills their own needs or doesn't, whether it fulfills others' needs or not. It's when we are connected in this way to what everyone is needing that we have the greatest chance of finding ways of getting everybody's needs met. But when any criticism gets into the dialogue, any words that imply wrong, bad, stupid, etc., instead of ending in compassionate giving, we're far more likely to end in alienation, wars, etc. After we have made clear expressions of what's alive in us, namely what we're observing, what we're feeling, what we're needing, if our need is not getting met, then we need to end on a clear request, and this request needs to make explicit what response we're wanting from the person we're speaking with at this moment. For example, a teacher gave me this real example from her classroom. She told me that a boy had been tapping on his desk while she was talking, and this was disrupting her. So uh, she told me that, Marshall, you know, I did just what you had taught us to do in other sessions. I told him that when I hear you tapping on the desk, I feel frustrated because I have a need to communicate with the students right now, and this is making it hard for me. Well, she had done a very good job of expressing what she was observing, feeling, and needing. But notice she didn't say what she wanted. And I said, I don't hear a request in there. She said, I did, that's right, I forgot, I did make a request. And I said, what was the request? I told him, I don't want you tapping on your book while I'm talking. And I said, then what happened? She said, he tapped on his desk. So she had told him what she didn't want. She didn't want him tapping on the desk. But in nonviolent communication, we tell people what we do want rather than what we don't want. So if she had ended on a request of the kind that we're advocating in nonviolent communication, she would have said, would you be willing to lay your pencil down on the desk, you see, without tapping further? You can add the, what you don't want after you have said what you do want. So, we want to make clear requests after we have made our needs clear. We need to also know the difference between a wish and a clear request. A wish says generally what we would like to happen in the future. So, if she had said to him, I would like more awareness on your part of how this is disrupting the class, that would be a wish. She would be telling him what she wants him to be aware of, but not telling him what she wants him to do at this moment. So, in nonviolent communication, when we've expressed a need that isn't met, we end on a clear request of what we want back at this moment. And the request needs to be in action language. We cannot use vague language like, I want you to help me. What does that mean? In different connections, it could mean quite different things. So we have to say not, I want you to help me with this problem. You have to say, I'd like you to tell me what you think would get my needs met in this situation. Tell me is much more specific than help me.
But it's not only important that we make very clear requests in clear action language, it's very important that we present the request as a request and not as a demand. Because if people hear demands, it takes much of the joy away from doing anything, and it is much more likely to provoke resistance than cooperation. Now, it's hard for people not to hear demands, especially if they have been in situations with authorities who think it's their job to make demands and who tell people you either do it or else. Or parents who say, please, maybe in a very nice way, but the child has experience from the past that if they don't do it, in some way or other, they will be blamed or punished. So therefore, we need to make our request in a way that people trust that it is a request and not a demand. I was asked to do some training of a group of 40 students in one school system. These students were labeled as socially and emotionally maladjusted. Now, of course, if we had been doing training in that school system before, we would have tried to make people clear about such language that leads to self-fulfilling prophecies. When you label students in a certain way, instead of getting what you would like in relationship to these students, your labels are likely to create exactly what you are diagnosing them as. So I knew that since these students were in a class and they knew they were labeled as socially and emotionally maladjusted, I could imagine it was going to be a pretty challenging day. And it started off challenging. I walked into the room, and about half of the class was hanging out the window, screaming obscenities at their friends in a courtyard below. I had to raise my voice to be heard, and I made a request. I said, excuse me, excuse me. I would appreciate it if you would each come over and sit down I'd like to tell you who I am and what I'd like to do today. I'd say maybe half the class came over, and there had been so much noise I wasn't sure that everyone had heard me. So I repeated my request, and this time everybody came over with the exception of two young men. But as my luck would have it, the two young men that didn't come over were the biggest ones in the class. And I said to them, uh, would one of you two gentlemen please tell me what you heard me say? And one of them responded by saying, you said we had to come over and sit down. See, he was hearing a demand. I made a request. He was hearing a demand. So I said, sir, I've learned to use sir with people who have biceps like he did. I said, sir, would you be willing to tell me? how I could let you know what I was wanting so it didn't sound like I was telling you what you had to do? He said, huh? I said, could you tell me how I could let you know what I wanted in a way that didn't sound like I didn't care equally to what you wanted? He stopped for a moment. I don't know. I said, just what's happening between you and me right now is much of what I want to talk about today. I believe that folks can get along much better if they can just say to one another what they would like without making any demands. So that's why I wanted to know how I could let you know what I wanted in a way that didn't sound like a demand. 
So, uh, hearing that, would you be willing to come on over and uh, see how we could communicate in this way? And that intrigued him, and the two came over, and we had a very productive day. But with many people, this is very hard to get them to trust that our requests are requests and not demands. To whatever degree people carry memories that when they don't do what other people want, they have been criticized, guilted, blamed, punished, then it becomes very hard to trust that when somebody says what they would like, that it is a request and not a demand. So, in nonviolent communication, we say what is alive in us, what are we observing, feeling, needing. We say clear request and present it as best we can in a way that people can trust that it is a request and not a demand. Now, some messages are really hard to say in a nonviolent communication way. And some of these messages are very important to be able to say. For example, the word no. How do you say no in a way that's in harmony with nonviolent communication? It requires saying three things. First, when somebody requests something of you, to say no in nonviolent communication, we begin by showing that we receive the other person's request as a gift. They're giving us a gift when they ask us to do something. It gives us a chance to contribute to their well-being. So, how do we do this? Well, largely, non-verbally, by how we respond to what they've asked us to do. That our nonverbal behavior will often tell people whether we're hearing it as a demand, a criticism, or as a request that gives us a chance to contribute to their well-being. So receiving what they have said is a gift is the first step in how to say no. The second step is to be aware that no is a poor expression of a need. Anytime a person says no, they're basically saying, I have a need that keeps me from wanting to do what you have requested at this moment. So, to say no in a nonviolent communication way, we say the need that keeps us from saying yes. So, if a person asks us if we would be willing to help them with cleaning up some job around the house, to say the need behind the no might go like this. You might say, right now I'm really very tired and have a need for some rest. So that's saying what need keeps you at that moment from wanting to do what the other person has requested. The third ingredient in saying no in a nonviolent communication way is to end on a request that searches for a way to get everybody's needs met. That might sound like this in the situation where the person has asked you for some help in cleaning up the house. After saying, I'm really fatigued right now and have a need for some rest, would it be okay if we did this in 30 minutes after I had a chance to get some rest? Or would you be willing to ask and then I might say someone else around the house that I think might be willing to do it. I might say, would you be willing to ask Jack if he could help you with this, since I'd really like to get some rest now. 
So the three parts of saying no in a nonviolent communication way is first of all to show a an empathic reception of the request of the other person. They feel understood, that their need was understood, their request was understood. Second, we don't say no, we don't say I can't, we say the need that keeps us from saying yes. And we end with a request that searches for a way to get everybody's needs met. Another message that's hard to say in a nonviolent communication way, how do we let people know when they're using more words than we want to hear? How do we do that without criticizing them? Of course, we all know how to interrupt another person when they're using more words than we want to hear in a violent way. We wait for them to breathe, and then we say quickly, uh, 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 excuse me, I just remembered my house is on fire, and we get out of the conversation as quickly as we can. Or we change the topic, do anything, so we don't have to listen to more words. In nonviolent communication, we stop the other person when we've heard more words than we want to hear, and let them know what our needs are. Excuse me, but... I'm impatient right now because I have a need for, and then we tell them what needs are not being met by the amount of words the other person is using. And again, we end on a clear request that searches for a way to get our need met and the other person's need met. One reason I've found that people use more words than anybody wants to hear is that the speaker is not conscious of what they want back. They don't understand what their own present requests are. And so they keep going on and on, trying to get what they want, when they're not even too sure what they want in the conversation. I can recall a very close friend I had that would often tell me at great length things that were happening to her in her workplace. And one day... I said to her, you know, I find it hard to follow you when I hear you telling all of this, but I'm not sure what you're wanting back from me. So could you tell me what your request is of me when you are telling me these things that happened to you at work? She thought for a moment, and she said, I thought it was important to say. And I'm saying, I'm confident you thought it was important to say, or you wouldn't have said it, but... I'm not asking whether you felt it was important or not. I'm asking what you want back from me when you tell me these things. She thought for a moment and said, I, I, I just wanted to say it. I don't want anything from you. I said, I see. Okay. So then is it okay if I read while you're saying it? And she says, do and I'll kill you. So she knew I was joking when I said, can I read while you say that? But I wanted her to see that if you speak to people and you're not clear what you want back from them, it takes the energy from the conversation. It makes it confusing to know how to follow. It makes it less interesting. And she later told me that this was very helpful for her that I mentioned this to her because she could see why so many people didn't like talking with her and that she used far more words than she herself enjoyed using. But she just didn't know how to get clear what she wanted back. And as a result of our conversation, she started to become conscious of what she wanted back before she said anything. And then she found that she would use far less words and 
much more often get what she wanted in the conversation. So, this is a very important part of nonviolent communication, that when we reveal our honesty, what's alive in us, we say what's going on, to be conscious of what we want back. And my prediction is, the more conscious you are of what you want back, in the form of what you're requesting of your listener, you'll use fewer words and get more understanding. Now, some needs are not too easy for people to get clear what they do want back to get these needs met. And very often, these are very important needs to get met. For example, I was working with a father and his 15-year-old son, and this father was not getting his need for respect met in relationship to the son. So I said to, to the father, the son was sitting there, I said, what do you want from your son? He says, I want him to respect me. I said, well, in nonviolent communication, we use the word respect more as a need, not as a request. That doesn't really say clearly what you want him to do. And the son said, yes, I think I'm respecting you. What do you want from me to show respect? And the father hesitated. It wasn't clear to him what he wanted back when his need for respect wasn't met. And then in a few moments, the father got it. He started to get clear of something that really subsequently helped immensely in improving his relationship with his son. The father said to me, Okay, Marshall, I think I'm seeing what you're trying to help us to see. I said, What's that? I see now what I want him to do to meet my need for respect. And I said, What's that? I want him to jump when I say jump and smile because he feels like jumping. So the father could see that when he said, I want you to respect me, he really wanted obedience. And he could see then why the son reacted so negatively when he would ask for things. So very important needs like respect. It's very important to know clearly what we do want from people. And without being clear about that, we often play some very oppressive games. For example, let's take another very important need to make this point clearer, how by not having clear requests, we often get involved in very oppressive forms of interpersonal relationships. Let's look at this word love. I was working with a couple that uh, was having problems in their relationship, and I asked the wife, what needs of yours are not getting met? And she said, my need for love isn't getting met. And the husband immediately said, but I love you. I said, hold it, hold it. Let's find out what she wants from you to get her need for love met. This is a very important need. And it's not always an easy need for us to get clear what our requests are of the other person. And it's important to get our requests clear when we have a need for love that isn't getting met because research shows that different people have quite different requests to get their need for love met. What'll meet one person's need for love doesn't necessarily meet another's need for love. So I said to the wife, so what specifically would you like him to do to meet your need for love? And she thought through for a few moments and she said to her husband, well, you know, 
And he said, no, I don't know. If I knew, I'd do it. And she said, well, it's not easy to say so clearly what I want. And he said, if it's not easy for you to say, can you see how hard it'll be for me to do? And so she thought and thought, and then she got an embarrassed look on her face. And she said, okay, Marshall, I got your point. I see what's going on. I said, what's that? I see why I'm not getting my need for love met. Why is that? What do you want him to do to meet your need for love? I want him to guess what I want before I even know what it is. And then I want him always to do it. We're listening to Marshall Rosenberg here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Let's look at this word love. I was working with a couple that uh, was having problems in their relationship, and I asked the wife, what needs of yours are not getting met? And she said, my need for love isn't getting met. And the husband immediately said, but I love you. I said, hold it, hold it. Let's find out what she wants from you to get her need for love met. This is a very important need, and it's not always an easy need for us to get clear what our requests are of the other person. And it's important to get our requests clear when we have a need for love that isn't getting met, because research shows that different people have quite different requests to get their need for love met. What will meet one person's need for love doesn't necessarily meet another's need for love. So I said to the wife, so what specifically would you like him to do to meet your need for love? And she thought through for a few moments, and she said to her husband, well, you know. And he said, no, I don't know. If I knew, I'd do it. And she said, well, it's not easy to say so clearly what I want. And he said, if it's not easy for you to say, can you see how hard it'll be for me to do? And so she thought and thought, and then she got an embarrassed look on her face. And she said, okay, Marshall, I got your point. I see what's going on. I said, what's that? I see why I'm not getting my need for love met. Why is that? What do you want him to do to meet your need for love? I want him to guess what I want before I even know what it is. And then I want him always to do it. This isn't rare. Many of us carry around very destructive strategies for getting our basic needs met. Strategies that are destructive, first of all, because they're not possible, or secondly, because they deny the needs of the other person and require that the other person be subservient to us. So it's very important to be able to say exactly what we want to meet our need for love. Very important. What do we want to meet our need for understanding and to express these requests in clear action language? Now, love, many people use in a different way than as a need. Some people use the word love as a feeling. 
in nonviolent communication, we suggest that we use the word love solely as a need and not as a feeling. If we're trying to express emotions, that then use other words beside love for describing what we are feeling. And uh, to make this clear for people, I tell a little story about a person that asks their partner, Do you love me? And the partner uses nonviolent communication, and the partner knows how important it is to be clear what people mean by love. So the partner says, uh, When you ask, Do I love you? Are you using the word love as a feeling? And this person says, yes, I use it as a feeling. And the person using nonviolent communication says, I see. So you're asking whether I feel warm, tender, cuddly emotions toward you. And the other person said, yes. And then the partner says, well, you see, we people in nonviolent communication, we use the word love as a need, not as a feeling. That's why I had to get this clear. But now that I know that you use the word love as a feeling, and I can see how important this is to you, I'll do my best to answer you honestly. So please ask the question again. And the person says, Do you love me? And the person using nonviolent communication says, When? And the other person is shocked. When, they say. And the other person using nonviolent communication says, Feelings change every few seconds. How can I possibly answer you honestly without reference to a specific time and place? And the other person says, Well, uh, 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 what about right now? And the person using nonviolent communication says, No, but try me again in a few minutes. You never know. So, in nonviolent communication, I hope that story, in a humorous way, gets you to see how important it is to use the word love as a need, and then, since it's such an important need, to be very explicit what we want from people to meet this need. Another thing that's very important in expressing our needs in a nonviolent communication way is not to get our needs confused with strategies for getting the needs met. Here's two characteristics that will help us to differentiate between needs and requests or strategies for getting our needs met. First of all, needs are universal. All human beings have the same needs. The second thing that differentiates a need from a strategy is a need contains no reference to specific people taking specific actions. So anytime we say, I want you to, that's not a need, that's a request or a strategy. Another thing that's very important when we do express clear requests is to make sure that we're not addicted to getting what we want. I like the way the Buddha says this. The Buddha says, never get addicted to your requests. And let me show you what this looks like then in a nonviolent communication way. 
A woman came back the second day of a workshop and said to me, I went home and tried what you taught us yesterday, Marshall, about being honest in a nonviolent communication way. I tried it, but it didn't work. I said, well, let's learn from it. What did you say and to whom? She said, it was a message I gave to my oldest son. When I got home yesterday, I noticed that he had not done three things that he said he was going to do in terms of cleaning up around the house. And she told me how she expressed herself honestly to him. She told me how she made a clear observation. She pointed out to him these three things he hadn't done. She clearly expressed her feelings and needs. And she made a clear request. She said, would you please go and do those three things now? So she had clearly used the language of nonviolent communication. And I said, what's the problem? Uh, that sounds like you really expressed it pretty clearly. She said, he didn't do it. Oh, I see. And then what did you say? She said, I told him you can't go through life being lazy and irresponsible. I said, I can see that I didn't make clear yesterday the difference between a request and a demand. It sounds like your objective was to get him to do those three things. She said, well, yes. I said, well, then that's not nonviolent communication. If your intent is to get people to do what you want, that's a different intent than we need to have if we're using nonviolent communication. In nonviolent communication, it's never our objective to get what we want. It's to create the quality of connection with people that ends with everybody getting their needs met. She said, oh, so I'm supposed to do all the cleaning around the house myself, and my needs don't count. I said, no, I'm glad you're checking this out. No, I'm saying that everyone's needs getting met is the objective of nonviolent communication. This doesn't require ever giving up or giving in. It just means not getting addicted to our strategy. If we are addicted to our strategy, it's very easy for the other person to hear our request as a demand, and this threatens their need for autonomy and makes it harder for them to enjoy giving. So we need to say clearly what we want. But the objective is to create a connection in which everybody's needs get met through compassionate giving. But if your objective is just to get people to do what you want, don't study nonviolent communication. Go to a dog obedience school and see how they train dogs. was Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication, who taught nonviolent communication all over the world for many years and helped create schools that taught nonviolent communication. Coming up next in a couple of minutes, an interview I did with James Mustich.
My guest is James Mustich. He's a book enthusiast, former bookseller, and the creator and curator of The Common Reader. And he's the author of this new, this wonderful new and very ambitious book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. James Mustich, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. I can only assume that you are a real book lover, and, th- and this project just reflects like a lifetime of reading and, and loving books and the whole experience of reading. That's true. The project is a book that's published today called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die. It's a nearly thousand-page book that's a beautifully illustrated in which I write about the thousand books that I choose from my list, and it represents, for me, a record of my lifetime as a reader and the books that I've loved as a reader, and also my career as a bookseller for more than four decades. For two of those decades, I ran a mail-order catalog called The Common Reader. It was before blogs and before the Internet, and I would write about books with a few colleagues, and we'd mail it out across the country and get fantastic letters back from customers with their own enthusiasms. And that kind of conversation and back and forth is also what I hope to capture in this book, because many of the books that I have come to treasure were, were suggested to me in the course of that correspondence. Well, when I first heard about this book, I was really intrigued. Normally, I do in-depth interviews with writers of an hour to two hours, but I, I couldn't resist this book. I mean, this just seemed like something that I had to have. And, of course, first thing, I had to leaf through and see the books that were in here. And, of course, if there were any of the standout books in my memory were in here. And uh-huh. I only found one of my relatively small handful of books that I could think of that really stood out in my my memory. But still, this book is very impressive. There's so many amazing books in here, and I just, I just wish I had more time to read. <laughs> That's my big <laughs> lament. <we> all. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, you know, part of, of what I did in the book was trying to do in the book was to encourage people to intrigue them with titles so they'd make that time. If all of us set aside even 15 or 20 minutes a day, it's astonishing how many books we can get through that we're not getting through now. What was the book that you did find in here? I'm just intrigued to know. (laughs) It was uh, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. Ah, that's a marvelous book, yes. And part of, you know, I've been writing this book for a long time, and so I've had conversations with a continual stream of people in fact at, at every every dinner party I've been at in the past 14 years of people asking me about uh, books that they've loved whether or not I've included them and suggesting to me things that were new to me that I, I would go off and, and research and discover and part of that kind of conversation and the prompting of that conversation is really one of the goals of the book so what's not in here is important to me, and I love that conversation about those things, but also the sense of someone just opening it up and browsing around and coming upon things that they may know or not know, that sense of serendipity and browsing that we find in, li- in, in a good bookstore and in libraries is really something I was trying to capture between covers. Yes, that, that is such a key thing because growing up, I've always loved good bookstores and I've loved libraries and especially used bookstores. I've, I've always had a fascination with used bookstores. It was, for me, they were like 
these treasure troves of of adventure and mystery and magic. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm never happier than when I'm in a store like that. And what's great about a used bookstore in particular is the abundance of books generally, the kind of organized disorganization because uh-huh. of the space constraints. Yes. And because new books are, you know, uh, new old books are, are, are keep coming in. And there's a kind of, there's some classification, but it's leavened by the serendipity of not really knowing what's going to catch your eye. And that's a way in which, you know, those of us who are readers, certainly, that's how we explore ourselves, that we go, we have some agency about identifying our interests and connecting them to books and to reading and to thinking about them and, and making the conversation with ourselves thereby more interesting than it is when we're just talking about what we're going to have for lunch or what we have to do for work and and so on. So I think it's so important in today's world with internet shopping and algorithms for everything, there's such a focus on efficiency that all of the parts of experience that are not actually made better by efficiency can go by the wayside. And since, you know, most of life is not very efficient, whether it's... uh, you know, raising kids or falling in love or having a friendship, those are not efficient things. And so that that kind of exploring is really important. And our imaginations are not an efficient thing. Absolutely. And that's that's the realm of books. That's what books do, is they engage our imaginations. And I love the way you mentioned about exploring ourselves, because there's like a dual aspect of it. We're exploring the possibilities of the world. We're exploring other people's experiences, other people's imaginations, and we're engaging our own imaginations and discovering ourselves all at the same time. Well said. I'm in violent agreement with you. <laughs> And I have to say, I was, I was a bit disappointed not to see Mark Helprin in your, uh, in your book, because he's, I think he may be my favorite author. Oh, well, Winter's Tale certainly is a marvelous book. And, uh, and that's not my favorite book of his. What's the one about the soldier? Soldier of the Great War. Yes, that's terrific. Yes. And he's one of the authors who, you know, was in the, you know, if we had maybe 1,100 probably would have made it in but um which one is your favorite of this um the soldier of the great war is and as well as um memoir in ant proof case yes yes he's a marvelous writer who else was on your that you look for that wasn't in here i'm, I'm interested well um louis de bernier uh-huh corelli's Mandolin, Mandolin was an amazing book and my memory is is not what it used to be, just as my eyes aren't what they used to be. And, and unfortunately, I much prefer reading on my nook with a, with a glow light because my eyes just uh, don't work like they used to. And books can be painful, especially if the print isn't really dark and if the print is at all fine. Yes. Yeah. So how did you come to write this book? Well, uh, as I said, I've been writing about books for for a long time in the catalog, and Peter Workman, the publisher, came to me uh, with the idea of adding a a thousand books book to his series of a a thousand things books, 
and it took off from there. And, you know, as I said, I wanted to make a record of what I've loved as a reader and what I've learned as a bookseller. And the project kind of grew in scope and as I went along. Although we always had a thousand, I think the, the essays that I write are a little bit longer than were intended because I had a lot to say about the books and we spent a lot of time collecting endnotes where we'd lead readers to other books. There's about 5,500 books mentioned in total in the book for the reading or other books by the same author or books to try if you liked a particular novel. And so, as I said, it's kind of the culmination of, of what I've been doing all my life, which is reading and writing about books and sharing with others what I found out. Mm-hmm. So how did you get so into books? Where did that begin for you? Well, it began with uh, my mom, who is uh, approaching her 90th birthday and is still the most voracious reader I know. And she would always was reading to me, always reading herself. I think the example of an adult reading is really important for a fledgling reader. And I just love going to libraries and bookstores and the kind of discovery that you get. And again, what we were talking about before, revealing aspects of yourself that your normal activities don't because you become interested in, in something or you see a picture or a cover of a book about archaeology or, or whatever it may be. I love that kind of, of browsing and serendipity and, and exploring new things. And the piles of books just grew from there. And the one thing that I, I most love to ask people is, do you have a, an interesting story, an interesting book story that you could tell? An interesting book story. Uh, I'll tell you one about uh, the author Joseph Heller. Uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> he wrote uh, Catch-22, yes. which he's most famous for. And I had the good fortune. He lived down the street on eastern Long Island, down the street from my in-laws. And one evening I had the good fortune to meet him at a cocktail party. And at that time, the Modern Library had just released its list of 100 greatest novels of the 20th century. And I think Catch-22 was on the list as number six or seven. And so I met him. It was the first time I met him. And I told him, congratulations on being on the list so high. And I said, but I think they picked the wrong book. <laughs> and he looked at me with this worried look on his face. He said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've always thought that something happened, which is was his second novel, which is also in my book, was a much better book, at least to me. And then he smiled. He said, you know, I've always thought that too. And we had this great conversation about it. And uh, he said at the time, and I told him I had read it when the book had come out when I was in my early 20s, and I just loved it. And he said, well, that's interesting because it's really, I'm surprised to hear that because it's really a book about you know, a middle-aged person and middle-aged concerns, which was interesting because the book, which I found hysterically funny at 22, when I read it again in my own middle age, struck me as kind of horrifying <laughs> because it was about all of the concerns that I myself and my friends were having as we approached middle age. But it was wonderful to see an author's affection for a book not quite as acclaimed as another book, and it was a marvelous conversation. So, you know, I, I'm very fond of that that whole episode. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love 
to pick your brain for more stories, but um, we're out of time, unfortunately, and I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to talk with you and also to have this book in my hand. It's, it's a wonderful, hefty, thousand-page, hardcover book, and I know I'm going to be returning to it many times for the rest of my life, so thank you, and, and congratulations on, on being the one who, who did this. Well, thank you for those very kind words, and uh, I'm glad you like it so much, and I hope your listeners will take a look as well. Thank you again, and be well. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was James Mustich. He's a book enthusiast, a former bookseller, the creator and curator of The Common Reader, and he's the author of this new, this wonderful new and very ambitious book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. you with a poem by W.S. Merwin entitled, Thank You. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it, smiling by the windows, looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after a funeral, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, We are saying thank you in doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on the stairs. We are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, We go on saying, thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us and with our lost feelings, we are saying, thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying, thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, We are saying thank you, faster and faster, 
with nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. Music